Lord is. And awe is what we're talking about this morning. We're talking about the awe, the awe for marriage is where we are focusing as we come to look at the drama of marriage as we continue our series. I hope you enjoyed Ben last week um, speaking about singleness as we continue on uh, that, that's, that same series looking at marriage. Ephesians chapter 5 is where we're going to be. Pick it up in verse 25. I'll read through verse 32. You can follow along in your own Bibles or read along with me as I read out loud on the screen. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, and he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now we're going to read Ezekiel chapter 16. We're going to read verses 4 through 17. This is a lengthy reading. And then verses 39 and 30, 59 and 60. And then lastly, verse 63. As for your birth, this is God speaking to Israel through the prophet Ezekiel. As for your birth on the day you were born, your cord was not cut. Nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No, I pitied you to do any of, these things, any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out on the open field, for you abhorred on the day that you were born. And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you, in your blood, live. I said to you, in your blood, live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field, and you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age of for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered over your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. And then I bathed you with water. And washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with the ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty. For it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. But you trusted in your beauty and played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby. Your beauty became his You took some of your garments and made for yourself colorful shrines, and on them played the whore. The like has never been, nor ever shall be. You also took your beautiful jewels of my gold and of my silver, which I had given you, and made for yourself images of men, and with them played the whore. Verse 39, and I'll give you into their hands, and they shall throw down your vaulted chamber and break your lofty places. They shall strip you of your clothes and take your beautiful jewels and leave you naked and bare. They shall bring up a crowd against you and they shall stone you and cut you to pieces with their swords. 
For thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done, you who have despised the oath and breaking the covenant. Yet I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish for you an everlasting covenant that you may be remembered and be confounded and never open your mouth again because of your shame when I atone for you for all that I have, you have done, declares the Lord. Praise be to God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, um, we need your help this morning. I need your help as we continue to discuss the seriousness of marriage. And Lord, I, um, as we continue to put forth the beauty of what this is supposed to be, Lord, I um, want to acknowledge that there are those in this room who are deeply wounded by marriage. And they're deeply hurt by it. That it has not lived up to all the promise that they thought it should be. With that, it has caused great pain in their life. For those um, who are living this morning in, in dis- deep disappointment and sorrow and hurt, I pray that you would come and by your spirit encourage them. And Lord, for all of us, I pray that you would cast before us a redeeming vision of what marriages ought to be. That we would move towards it with intentionality and a conscious effort to live into the redemptive work of Jesus Christ and what you're doing in our marriages. We pray that the spirit would come and fill us up this morning to hear your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Marriage is hard. Understatement of the year. And um, we long for help in our marriages, don't we? I mean, we have, I mean, if you were to do a Google search for simply marriage, you would come up with something like tens of thousands of Google pages of books and articles about how to do marriage. We are longing for some sort of direction and some guidance and some means of helping us figure this thing out. And yet, it's interesting, what we are looking at in Ephesians chapter 5 is the magnum opus. It's all you get It is pretty much the fullest length of discussion we get in the whole Bible about what marriage is supposed to be. We look at it and we look at the Bible. The Old Testament and the New Testament gives us a few things about about how we're not supposed to get divorced and what are the circumstances under that. But for the most part, this is about the only place in which we get any guidance about what marriage is supposed to look like in our life. And this is it. Usually, where do we see marriage in the Bible? It's not much, we don't get much instruction and guidance other than here in Ephesians 5, but the primary place in which we see marriage talked about is indirectly. It's not talked about directly, it's talked about indirectly as it mentions and brings out the the, the interactions between various husbands and wives, various stories of marriages in the Bible, Adam and Eve, Isaac and Rebecca, David and Bathsheba, Solomon and wives 1 through 600. You see, the Bible, as it often does, does not so much provide a how-to manual, but when it comes to marriage, God gives us stories. We might say he gives us one story. You see, the Bible, as it often does, does not give us a how-to manual, but it gives us stories. One of the words that we use in discipleship and equipping culture is this phrase, that more is caught than taught. And the Bible teaches us often most clearly most mystically, so that you feel it and you sense what, it's, what is being given to you through story. And so we need a story for marriage. But it can't just be any story, right? Because the world is telling lots of stories about marriage. We, I mean, so many movies are romance movies. So many books are romance novels. 
We even have a movie called The Marriage Story. And these stories are no good. I remember I watched The Marriage Stories, I think during uh, the shutdown a couple years ago. The Marriage Story, it's a Netflix movie that stars Scarlett Johansson and Adam Driver. And the movie opens with a couple in marriage counseling. And they're in the marriage counseling, they're supposed to write down what they love about each other. And they both do it, but the wife is too embarrassed to share her affection for her husband. And ultimately, they decide to forego the counseling, and the marriage continues to disintegrate. And at first, they decide that they're going to get divorced, but they're going to divorce amicably, dividing the time with their son, etc. You know, doing, they're going to go about things and still remain friends. But as the movie proceeds, it becomes messy and ugly, ultimately landing at an emotional climax where they finally lay down their swords and go back to an amicable agreement for the divorce. And the movie ends with an emotional scene where the husband finds the list that his wife had written so long ago in that counseling meeting. And he has his own son read it to him about what she felt about him years earlier. This is how the movie ends. And in our cynicism, in our pessimism, this is the best story that we can tell. A story of an amicable divorce where we have memories of love lost. That's the best we got. And so we need a new and we need a better story. A drama that is beautiful and not simply the mitigation of tragedy in our life. If we in this fallen world, in our fallen estate, as we've looked at the first couple weeks, we first looked at the essence of what marriage is. That it is a marital covenant. That it's a promise for a lifetime of, of, of giving ourselves to one another so that we become one in flesh and in friendship and in intimacy. And the second week, we looked at the problem, the breakdown, that we are unwilling to submit our lives to the Lord, and therefore we are unwilling to submit our lives to one another as it calls us to do so in Ephesians 5, verse 21. And therefore, if we're going to have any hope for our marriages, the greatest thing that we need is we need all of the greatest story of marriage that we find in the Bible. We need all. A-W-E. Because that is what it says at the end of Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Reverence, there would literally be awe. Awe at what Christ has done. And Ephesians 5 is saying you can only understand your marriage in light of another story and another marriage. And that is God's marriage to the church. That is the description we're given there at the end of the teaching on a marriage. That I am talking here about your marriage, but I'm talking about a greater marriage, Paul says. I'm talking about God's marriage, Christ's marriage to the church. And Paul refers to this story, but let's look at another place in Scripture, because he simply refers to it in Ephesians 5. But it's a story that's written throughout the Bible, but it is summarized graphically, as we see in Ezekiel chapter 16, graphically in various places. And what we have in Ezekiel chapter 16 is this. The context is that Israel is God's beloved God found Israel and he made Israel. He brought her out of enslavement. They were nothing, but God made them something. He brought them out of idolatry and paganism where they were wandering around Canaan. That's what Abram was doing. He preserved them in their enslavement and then dismantled the greatest nation on earth at that time to bring his people out into freedom, into life and adulthood. And he gives them the promised land. And he gives them jewelry and fine things and animals and blessings and promises. 
And yet, what does Israel do in the history of Israel? They turn their back on God, who has done so much for them. And in the context of Ezekiel 16, the, God is particularly angered with Israel because instead of trusting him for provision as they are being threatened by nations around them, instead they align themselves with Assyria, Egypt, and the Chaldeans, and they are worshiping other gods. They are adulterous people. And God comes and says, let's go over the story again, the story of my relationship with you. And here in the story in Ezekiel chapter 16, we come to see the narrative of God's marriage to his people. And we see that God plays three roles, three roles this morning from Ezekiel chapter 16. And to be out front, to be very clear, I took all three of these particular outline notes from Ray Cortez and his sermon on Ezekiel chapter 16. The content in the middle isn't his, but the outline the headings are his. And so first thing I want you to see in the early part of Ezekiel in verses 4 through 17, that God is our smitten lover. God is our smitten lover. When the play opens up, what do you see? There is a baby girl, and she is what? Is she loved? No. Like many girls throughout history, she is thought of as useless. She is not desired. In fact, she's thrown away into a field to be left bleeding and dying. The baby is bleeding. It has not been cleansed. No care has been given to the child. And yet God says that this is what Israel was like when he passed by her. And yet he did not reject her or ignore her. He heard her cries. He picks up this naked baby girl. He washes her and he gives her life. She is not beautiful. She is not lovely. Everything about her is actually something grotesque. And yet he makes her beautiful. He adorns her, and she becomes famous, it says, because of the beauty that God has bestowed upon her. So the one giving her favor is giving her unmerited favor. That is called grace. That God enters into a, and a covenant with this child. The girl grows up, and then God takes her as his bride. He lavishes his compassion and his love upon her. And this is the story that we see from beginning to end in the Bible. From the beginning, we are viewed as God's bride. It actually says this in Isaiah chapter 54, verse 5, for your maker is your husband. And at the end of the Bible, what do we have? What does the end of all things lead to? Revelation chapter 9, verse 7, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb that is Jesus Christ has come and his bride has made herself ready. The Bible from beginning to end, it begins with a wedding in a garden and it ends with a wedding in the glorious city with a glorious and wondrous feast. That is the story of the Bible. And this is God saying, I don't want to know you. He has all these motifs and these metaphors in the Bible that he uses to help us understand our relationship with him as such a servant and slave or shepherd to sheep or as lord to subjects. But he says, I don't necessarily just want you to know me in those relationships. I don't want to just know you as a servant to a slave or a shepherd to sheep or as lord to subjects or even as parent to child. I want to know you lover to lover, face to face. Face to face. Isaiah 62 verse 5 says this, For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. This is, from beginning to end, the picture that God gives us. It is not a picture, actually. It is the real thing, and our marriages are really the picture. This is how God views his people. 
as his bride. Many talk a lot about knowing God and his attributes, but they don't know anything about the intimacy of hearing the voice of God. We will say it now. We sing it all the time in our worship services about how we can speak to God in intimate ways. But do you actually know that he speaks to you in this way? With intimacy as his lover. That's part one. But part two, then he moves into a second role. We see that God in Ezekiel chapter 16 moves from God as our lover who loves us, who's saturated with us, to say that he is our spurned lover. And I explain the story in Ezekiel 16. We see that God's bride turns herself, beginning in verse 15, to other lovers. And the description here of her turning herself to other lovers is graphic, maybe the most graphic in all the Bible. The story of the Bible is one of marriage, but God's marriage to his covenant people, it does not go so well. In fact, God has the bride from hell. The prophetic voices of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Hosea all retell the whole story of Israel's history through this picture, and they describe it in this one word, whoredom. Whoredom. The Lord gives himself to Israel in a pure and holy marriage. He pledges to be her God for all that means, and she consented to be his for all that that means. He promised to guide her infallibly, to protect her fiercely, to fulfill her. She promised to love him, to obey him, to honor him. But this most sacred marriage, it becomes an absolute misery. Though the divine husband is faithful and true and generous, The bride sells herself out. And she gave herself away to many lovers. Many, many times. This woman who's been made beautiful by her husband to be beautiful for her husband. She uses her beauty and her jewelry to attract other lovers. She uses it for herself and her own self-glory. And all her jewelry and clothing and perfumes and beauty and fame and glory are simply cast out and given to other gods. And the word used to describe this over and over and over again, we read it time after time in Ezekiel 16, is this graphic word, whoredom. And she is not shy about her whoredom. She hurled herself with abandon into a pattern of open, and we might even say compulsive, compulsive whoredom, like an addiction to it, throwing herself from one God to the next, Hebrews, in the Hebrew, actually, verse 25, our translators in English are actually too bashful to that phrase that says she offers herself. It actually is the literal phrase means she splays her legs. This is how God describes Israel and how she's living and how she runs after other gods and gives herself time and time again. Ezekiel says the people of God eventually sank to a level of degeneracy unheard of among ordinary prostitutes. Even other prostitutes go, now that's messed up. And that the whore Israel actually pays her customers. You see this in verse 33 and verse 34. It says this, men give gifts to all prostitutes, but you give gifts to your lovers, bribing them to come to you from every side from your whorings. So you are different from other women in your whorings. No one solicited you to play the whore, and you gave payment while no payment was given to you. Therefore, you were different. And how will she she be treated by her lovers? Verse 39 through 41 give us this description. It says that they will strip her bare. They will beat her. And they will hack her to pieces. 
It is a description of the people of Israel that if you give yourself to Israel, I mean to Egypt, if you give yourself to the surrounding nations, they will not treat you well. They will instead, they will enslave you. And eventually in Ezekiel chapter 33, it says that she becomes simply exhausted, dying because she's so exhausted, worn out by her adultery. And in this passage, and in all the passages of the Old Testament that connect this idea of whoredom, they connect adultery to idolatry. Adultery equals idolatry. We are told that God's people, that this is who they are. They're an adulterous people, and it's using this image to describe their idolatry to serve other gods. Adultery is taking something something that you have covenanted to give to your one spouse, your attention, your love, and your trust, and you're giving it to somebody else. Well, idolatry is when you have covenanted with God to give him rightly your life, your trust, your love, your worship, and you're giving it to someone else, another God. In various ways, the people of God treated their divine husband as if he were unworthy. He was an inadequate, so they ran off to other lovers to offset what they perceived to be the Lord's failings to them. In Ezekiel, the context is the attraction of trusting in the protection of other nations. In other places, it's different, though. In Isaiah, it's the context their whoredom is described because they have rejected justice. It says this in Isaiah 121, how the faithful city has become a whore. She who was full of justice. In Jeremiah 2, the context is their worship of Baal. These are her other lovers. Injustice, oppression of the poor and the immigrants, and the running after other nations to preserve them. And this, this, this idolatry, adultery equals idolatry, and this is true for us as well. We use the phrase, and we use it in prayer often in the Christian church, uh, loving the gifts instead of the lover. That's bad. And this is where sometimes the comfort with Christian language begins to hurt us, doesn't it? That, tr- that phrase is so true, that we grow to the place where we love the gifts instead of the, the giver of the gifts, but we lose the full weight of that because we use it so often. You see, what we're talking and referring to there is that what we're saying is this, is we have loved the gifts and actually hoard ourselves out to the gifts that God has given instead of giving ourselves covenantally to our God's. And so we take the things that God has given us, sex and family and children and comfort and finances and work, and we say, these are God's blessings, but I'm going to make them my great idol and my great gods. And God calls it what it is, adultery, unfaithfulness. He says, you're cheating on me with other gods. Thou shalt have no other gods before me is the first commandment. And the greatest commandment is to love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And yet we're running after other lovers. If we love something more than God, we are committing adulterously. And so the question is, what is it for you? Well, most likely, you're like Israel. You see, did they just serve one other foreign god or one nation? Oh, no. They served many, many, many gods. What is it for you? I'll point out one. But maybe you'll hear your own in this. Listen, suppose you're a fantasy football geek. I mean, you just love it. You spend hours every week scouring the sites, setting your roster just perfect, and obsess over all week. You study it. 
You listen to podcasts. It becomes the center of your social world. You spend money on it. You look forward to Sunday each week where you park yourself for four to six hours in front of your TV. And even when you're not, you're constantly checking your phone, seeing how your team is doing, obsessively looking for the latest updates. Does this sound familiar? You have holidays called the draft that you center your life around. And every once in a while, your wife looks at you and goes, you know what? If only he would study me like he studies his fantasy football team. (laughs) If only I got that kind of attention. Do you think every once in a while she might look at that and go, this is ridiculous. We also wonder how God might look at us as we day to day study a thousand other things, but we skip time studying him. And we mope around about having to go to community group. Because God forbid we should have to enter into the house of God and speak about the goodness of the Lord. And we neglect prayer because talking to him, (laughs) that's for schmucks. Why would we talk to him? Why would we want that kind of intimacy? I have this other thing that I need to talk about with my friends. You see, when you give something to another lover that should be deserved only for God, you're guilty of adultery. It is no joking matter to him. What do we do with our adultery? What do we need to do? What did Israel need to do? They need to repent and they need to go home. It's the picture we're given in the story of Hosea, where Hosea is called to go marry a prostitute. She runs time after time to other lovers. Gomer was her name and he must go get her. And the call is for her to come home. Come home. Come home. And you come home because of the last thing we see about our God, which is this, that God is our sacrificial lover. Not only is he smitten with us, not only is he the scorned lover, but he is the sacrificial lover of our soul. And this is the story that becomes the whole story of the Bible, the redemptive theme. God came down to earth to get his wayward wife back. And the question is this, how will the husband respond when he finds that his wife has run off with the postman? What will he do when he finds her? As we read in verse 59, he tells her, I'm going to give you what you deserve. You've abandoned me, and so I will abandon you. You run after other lovers, therefore you can have them, and they can have their way with you. This is the jealous, grieved justice of God, our husband, and he would be right. In fact, he would be good. It would be an instinct of good to give us to such a thing. But then after verse 59, he flips it on verse 60. But then he says this, no, I'll remember my covenants. And in fact, he says, I'm going to restate my covenant. I'm going to give you a new covenant. This time, it's going to be an everlasting covenant. And I will be for her and covenant for her from everlasting to everlasting. That would not be justice. That would be called immeasurable grace. Alongside the jealous justice of love comes the gracious longing for restoration that emanates from love as well. They both come from love. The jealous justice of God and the gracious love of God both emanate from his perfect character. So will he be just or will he be gracious? He longs to be rid of our disgrace, to cover it over, to forget it and to cast it away forever so that he is restored to his bride that he loves. He wants her and he wants her to want him. And yet the disgrace is still there. The cost is still there. She is disgraced before the world, full of shame and guilt, and she has disgraced him. Who will pay that cost? Her sin is a mockery of him, and the world mocks him because of her. Where is the resolution? 
And what is the solution? We see it in verses 62 and verses 63. He continues on, I will establish my covenant with you and you shall know that I am the Lord, that you you may remember and be confounded and never open your mouth again because of your shame when I atone for you for all that you've done, declares the Lord. Atonement. Atonement is a 50 cent word in the Bible. It's a theological word that means cover over your sin. To have all the consequences paid for, for the sins to be removed for you. God will be just, but how will this atonement happen for your sin and your guilt? He says, I will atone for it. I will take it. But only instead of her being abandoned and rejected for sins, God says, you will not be abandoned. I will be abandoned. God says, I will be the husband and I will bear the consequences of the wife's sin. What happens to her in this passage? What does he predict that the nations are going to do to Israel? It says that they will strip her, that she will be humiliated, that she will be abandoned, that she will be cut to pieces. Let me ask you, what happened to Jesus? He was stripped. He was naked. He was humiliated. He was abandoned. He was alone. My God, my God. And finally, he was pierced. And who did he do it for? For his bride. Can you believe he made atonement for such a bride as this? I've seen many pastors incite young grooms. This is where I stand usually. And I I don't know that I've done this, but I've seen other pastors do it where they're trying to incite and get the groom to be present in the moment. And they say, would you look at your bride for a second? And he goes, isn't she beautiful? And he usually goes, he kind of mutters something incoherently, like, "Uh, uh, yeah. (laughs) What if a pastor was performing the wedding of Jesus and his bride, and that same question was asked? Jesus, isn't your bride beautiful? No. No. No, she's not. No, she is not beautiful. And I would say, or the pastor would say, but Jesus, do, do you love her? And he would say, yes. In my eyes, she is worthy of my life. Jesus, what have you done to show your love? And he would not hand a ring. He would show his hands. The story of the Bible reaches a tipping point when God sends his son to run after his bride to take her shame upon himself, to take her guilt, and to take her just punishment, to die on a cross, so that the fury of God's jealous love is expended on him, so that all that is left for his bride is the warmth and the affection of his embrace. We started this morning in Ephesians 5, verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. How do you get an awe a reverence for Christ. You listen to the story of his spousal love for you. You have to retell the gospel story of your groom's love for you over and over and over again so that you want to submit to him and you want to never leave him and you want to never pursue those other selfish pursuits of your life. You have to come back to this story, to understand that he never leaves you or forsakes you so that you never want to leave or forsake him.
I'm going to read you a long account from Jan Martel's bestseller, The Life of Pi. It's about a Hindu boy named Pai who meets a Catholic priest named Father Martin who tells Pai the story of the gospel. And Pai is enamored by the gospel, but he's troubled by it. And in the account, this is from Pai's perspective, he said this, I asked for another story, one that I might find more satisfying. Surely this religion had more than one story in its bag. Religions abound with stories. But Father Martin made me understand that this religion had just one story. And to it they came back again and again, over and over, for it was story enough for them. I was quiet that evening at the hotel. I was troubled that a God would put up with adversity. That a God would put up with adversity I could understand. The gods of Hinduism faced their fair share of thieves and bullies and and kidnappers and usurpers. Adversity, yes. Reversals of fortune, yes. Treachery, yes. But humiliation? Death? I couldn't imagine Krishna consenting to be stripped naked, whipped, mocked, dragged through the streets, and to top it off crucified, and at the hands of mere humans to boot. I never heard of a Hindu god dying. Divinity should not be blighted by death. It's wrong! Why would God wish that upon himself? Why not leave death to the mortals? Love. That was Father Martin's answer. The son goes hungry? Suffers from thirst, gets tired, sad, anxious, heckled, and harassed. Has to put up with the followers who don't get it and opponents who don't respect him. What kind of God is that, I said. It's a God onto too human of a scale, that's why. This son is a God who spent most of his time telling stories and talking. This son is a God who walked, a pedestrian God, and in a hot place at that, with a stride like any human stride, the sandal just reaching above the rocks along the way. And when he splurged on transportation, it was just a regular donkey. This son is a God who died in three hours with moans, gasps, and laments. What kind of God is that? What is there to inspire in this son? Love, said Father Martin. I had tea with Father Martin three days in a row. Each time his teacup rattled against saucer, a spoon tinkled against edge of cup, I asked questions. The answer was always the same. He bothered me, this son. Every day I burned with indignation against him, found more flaws to him, but I couldn't get him out of my head. Still can't. I spent three solid days thinking about him. The more he bothered me, the less I could forget him. And the more I learned about him, the less I wanted to leave him. See, as you grow in your awe of Christ, when the old and one story is what you tell yourself over and over and over again, the story of the one who traveled the earth to the greatest places of danger and into death itself where he faced the mighty beasts called sin, death, and the devil And as we hear the story, we want to give him our lives. It's why we worship the way we do here. We want to to retell the story every week. It's the number one thing you need. It's what adulterers need to call them home. We want to submit in the awe of his love for us. And our lives come back into submission, living under the shadow of his loving headship and care. We will find there a loving, a longing, and a power to submit our lives, not just to him, but to our spouses. To die daily, 
to sacrifice fully, even when they least deserve it, day after day after day. The whole context of the passage of marriage in Ephesians 5 is submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. You see, all for Christ as a lover of your soul is the power you need for your earthly marriage. But I also want you to see this as well because this is now going to set the stage for where we are going in the next couple weeks because next week we're going to begin looking at the roles of women and then we're going to look at the role of men. We have a role to play because the ultimate purpose of marriage is to give glory to Christ our husband by making marriages that reenact the story of God's love for us. We've looked at the essence of marriage. It's a covenant promise. We live the promise of marriage, or the problem of marriage, which is our unwillingness to cement in our selfishness. And the, but the, now we look at the purpose of marriage, and the purpose of marriage is gospel reenactment. That's what it is. My daughter is about to be in a musical at school. It won't be done with professional actors and actresses. It won't be done with the same beauty and skill as those on Broadway. In fact, it'll probably be quite bad with notes that are off-key and lines that are forgotten. But it'll be the same play. And I will cheer. And I'm inviting you into a high school musical called Marriage, where our marriages will be a living drama before the world, mimicking the story of God's love for his spouse. A marriage that, in fact, incarnates the truth of the gospel by putting flesh on it. Building a marriage that models things like submission, and forgiveness, and selfless love, and sacrifice. Very briefly, to illustrate how this changes the whole approach of marriage, imagine, imagine one day that you come home, and your spouse is rather rotten. I mean, I know this is a really difficult thing to imagine about your spouse. If they're just having a rotten day, what if they have a rotten week, or rotten month, or God forbid, a rotten year? I mean, they are being a turd of epic proportions. What if your spouse is just, this is where they're living for a while? And they're caught up in their sinfulness and their selfishness and their addictions. They are not kind. They become for a season the spouse from hell. How does this purpose reshape how you respond then? The worldly purpose for marriage would say, marriage is supposed to work for you. It's supposed to work for me. And since this isn't working for me anymore, then listen, I'm out. And so either they physically leave or they emotionally separate themselves or they sexually separate themselves. And they say, listen, when you are willing to be the spouse that you ought to be, then I'll return. But the purpose of gospel reenactment, if this is the reason why we're in marriage, when you are at your worst, that's what we're doing. When we come home and we see that our spouse is at their worst, this is now an opportunity, and in fact, the best opportunity for you to fulfill the purpose of marriage, which is this, to look at your spouse and say, when you are at your worst, this is my opportunity to finally, to finally love you like Christ loves the church. When you don't deserve respect, when you, do, when you don't deserve my love and affection, it's in that moment, it's in that moment that I will move towards you with sacrifice and forgiveness, with long-suffering and forbearance, with patience and gentleness and kindness. And in this manner, and in this manner, marriage functions in the old Catholic word almost like a sacrament where we proclaim before the world the glory of God and the groom who has loved us 
so well. Praise be to the Lord. Let's pray. For many in this room, the idea of Christ's love for the church is not a new thing, Lord. And so, Lord, for those in which this is a rote metaphor, Spirit of the living God, I pray that you'd come and press it in again. That you would return us back. Think about the Ephesians church in Revelation who had lost their first love. Would you turn us back to our first love again? For those in this room who have been trying to do marriage with a just um, giving in, it's my day to be selfish, and then the next day it's your day to be selfish, and we just go back and forth like that. I pray that you would restore them now. You would bring them into a new vision for what marriage should be like, and that you would confront us all with your love. That, Lord, we would be humble before our spouses and love them well because we see ourselves as the adulterous bride. That we would be humbled by that reality. And yet, Lord, that you would bring us to a place of utter awe because where our sin is grace, great, where your grace be all the more greater. Would you, by the Spirit of God, come help us do that? Convict our souls. And restore us to you once again, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.